One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing can osteoarthritis be prevented? Osteoarthritis is an extraordinarily prevalent and disabling disease, and the prevalence appears to be increasing in large part compounded by the aging of the population, but also with major contributions from demographic shifts as it relates to obesity, are leading to increased numbers of people with osteoarthritis. The two most important risk factors for knee osteoarthritis are obesity or overweight and joint injury. They account for approximately 75% of a person's likelihood of developing osteoarthritis of the knee. Both are eminently modifiable, but from a public health perspective, we do very little, if anything, about modifying either. We've previously had an episode on joint action from Tim Hewitt about the importance of joint injury and opportunities for prevention of knee osteoarthritis. So if that's of interest, focus on that episode. But the focus of this episode is to shift to a larger risk factor, namely overweight and obesity. Now, this accounts for approximately 50% of a person's likelihood of developing the osteoarthritis and has important consequences for the hip and the hand as well. Now, our society is becoming increasingly sedentary and consuming more calories, and the number of people who are above a healthy weight is increasing as a consequence. In many Western countries, this is now approximately two-thirds of the population there are important opportunities here to modify the leading risk factor for disease. And the purpose of this episode of Joint Action 
is to examine these opportunities and look where we might go. And we're joined by none other than Jus Runha. Dr. Jus Runha is an assistant professor at the Department of General Practice of Erasmus in the Netherlands. He was trained as a human movement scientist at a university in Amsterdam. For his PhD, he performed the first ever trial on the primary prevention of osteoarthritis, supervised by two leaders in the musculoskeletal world, Professor Sita Berbizinstra and Professor Coase. The research direction that your aims to focus on is to improve the diagnosis and treatment of musculoskeletal disorders by general practitioners and physiotherapists, and importantly, to shift the treatment of musculoskeletal disorders to early phase disease. Jos, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. Great to have you here, albeit it's a much larger distance than I would like, but irrespective, good to see your face and good to have a chance to chat about a really important topic. Now, before we get into the topic of the day, any conflicts or disclosures that you want to announce? No, no conflicts from my side. Now, the first part of the show is me usually just probing you unnecessarily to try to get to know you a little bit better. We've obviously had some opportunities in the past, but I haven't seen you for a little while, so that things may have changed. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? In five words, I would say I'm very positive. I'm loyal. I would say I'm a sporty type, curious, and maybe uh, reliable. All wonderful qualities. Um, and hopefully we'll dig a little bit more into the uh, sporty and curious in a minute. But I think as as researchers, one of those qualities that really stands us in good stead is curiosity and the desire to go off and pursue questions that most other people wouldn't necessarily think are worth asking. Now, on a day-to-day basis, when you're at work, and admittedly at, at home, you're at home at the moment due to the impact of COVID in the Netherlands, but when you're at work, can you tell me a little bit more about what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. So we have a a very active group of researchers at our department with a large number of PhD students and research assistants focusing on musculoskeletal disorders in primary care. Um, We do studies on the diagnosis and treatment and prognosis of, of many musculoskeletal disorders, but we tend to have a focus on osteoarthritis. Also given the fact that, as you mentioned, Hercita Biermazainstein is our head uh, of this research. Like you said, we try to focus on the, the, the early diagnosis and treatment. And with early, we mean in primary care. We see most patients start in primary care and actually stay in primary care for their treatment. So we think it's very important to have a good diagnosis and treatment uh, and knowledge about this in primary care. We, have, uh, we run many trials, we have uh, access to a lot of large cohorts, and we try to, as a group, inform each other, motivate each other, and really stimulate each other uh, to come to uh, great research output. So it sounds like a wonderful environment in which to work, and I'm sure uh, Sid is a, a, a wonderful person to be in charge of that. And from your perspective, I think you're obviously achieving a lot, so it's, it's an incredibly productive environment. Now, when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? When I'm not at work, I uh, like to spend time with my two kids. Like I said, I do my sports. I play uh, beach volleyball twice a week. And well, more recently, I'm I'm spending a lot of time in uh, preparing to uh, actually buy a van 
and build that into a camper van for the upcoming summers. And that's taken a lot of time, but I really enjoyed doing that. <laughs> Sounds like hopefully a lot of adventures with family, but are you a mechanic at heart? Not really. Like I said, I'm curious. I like to prepare myself well. And I found out that if I do so, I am skilled enough to build some things in and around the house. And this will be the next challenge, actually. Now, the Netherlands doesn't necessarily strike people from Australia as a place where a lot of beach volleyball would be played. How did you first get into that? So it's, it's quite a bit of coincidence, but very nearby, there's an indoor facility for beach volleyball. And actually, my first introduction there was when I started Human Movement Sciences. We had a very active group of students there. We did all kinds of activities, and one of the first activities was going to this indoor location. And I fell in love with the sport, so I do it now, yeah, like almost 20 years. And luckily, we have some good summers, so sometimes uh, uh, during summer, the most of the times, it's, it's actually outdoors. Fantastic. I, I would imagine that's where it's meant to be, meant to be played. One of the Definitely. highlights of going to the Sydney Olympics was actually having an opportunity to watch the beach volleyball where they had a court set up in the middle of Bondi Beach in Sydney and it was absolutely spectacular with the ocean as a backdrop. But yeah, wonderful yeah. sport. Now, I digress and let's get into the topic of the day. And we're going to start off with just by getting a sense of the scope and magnitude of the risk associated with this. But can you give me a sense as to what, what is the magnitude of contribution of overweight and obesity to the development of knee osteoarthritis? And I'm very happy for you to explain complicated terms in layman's terms about population attributable risk and those sorts of things. But if you could just give me a broad overarching sense, that'd be brilliant, Gus. Sure. Yeah, like you said in your introduction there, uh, the number of people with uh, overweight or uh, obesity is, is rising. So there are many people at risk for osteoarthritis due to their weight status. And we think that about 25%, so one in four of every new case of osteoarthritis, is directly due to being overweight or obese. I believe there are over 200 million people affected worldwide. So imagine if one in four is due to overweight or obesity. That's a, a huge number. Yeah, and as you say, the epidemiologic trends are such that it's likely to continue to increase. And, you know, I've, I obviously mentioned, I think, a figure of 50% in the introduction, but there's a, I think there's a huge variability in some of the studies out there that have quoted about what proportion of people likely develop knee osteoarthritis as a result of, of different factors. When you look at the contribution that obesity plays to the number of people who get hospitalized, does it also play a role there? Uh, my research really focused on the primary care, so I'm not really expert in the treatment that's done in the hospitals and, and what are the risk factors or complicating factors there. But obviously, there are a lot of people with overweight and obesity that get, get their joint replaced in the end state of osteoarthritis. And I do think that there is actually a, an, an upper limit. So I do think that people that are above a certain weight can't be operated upon uh, because of potential complications. So I'm, I'm sure that a lot of obese and um, overweight people get surgery, but there are even a lot of people that don't get the surgery because they are too overweight or obese. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the main point I just wanted to make there is that about 90% of people who are in hospital for a joint replacement are above a healthy weight. Um, and yours, as you suggested, those people who might go on to get elective orthopedic surgery as a consequence of 
them being above a healthy weight are at much greater risk of complications and a, and a poorer outcome. Now, when we're talking about prevention of osteoarthritis, you've led one of the only prevention studies that I'm aware of called PROOF, which I think helped to establish some really important estimates around how much weight a person needs to lose and how long they need to lose that for in order to take, in, take effect. Do you want to just tell us, I guess, briefly in the first instance, a little bit about PROOF and then from what you've found, how much weight does a person need to lose in order to take an effect over what time period? Sure. So for this study, like you said, we wanted to prevent osteoarthritis. So obviously we included people without osteoarthritis, but being at risk for osteoarthritis. We know women are at increased risk for developing osteoarthritis of the knee, and it usually starts around the age of 50 or 60. So we included women between 50 and 60 who were free of uh, knee complaints, but also had a BMI, uh, so a body mass index of 27 or higher. So that's overweight or obese. So those were three risk factors, and we tried to help them to lose some weight in the ones that were randomized to the intervention group, and obviously we compared that to the control group. And if you talk about the amount of weight they have to lose, I think it's really essential for people to understand that. So we aimed for five kilograms or 5% weight loss, which is not huge, but from the literature we know that even outside of osteoarthritis, it has a very strong health effects. So the risk for cardiovascular disease goes down. Things like diabetes all are affected already by 5%. But in this age group, I think on average, people gain weight every year, roughly about half a kilogram a year. So of course we aim for weight reduction, but I think that people in this age category, if they will be able to remain stable with their weight, they're already doing very good. So I, I definitely want to make the point that we should not aim for large reductions and very unachievable targets, staying at weight or losing like five kilograms or 5% could well be enough to have a health effect, not only on osteoarthritis, but also on other diseases. How, how long did you follow these people for in the study? Um, and obviously, how long was the more intense intervention that you were applying there? So we tried to have an intervention that was really, uh, if effective, would be very easy to implement in primary care. So we had a, a fairly short intervention. We focused on the first year to, to try to help people to change their lifestyle and through that lose some weight. In the end, we followed people up to over six and a half years to really see the development of osteoarthritis because that's a very slowly developing disease. So you need long follow-up times to see who is actually developing the disease. But our focus of the intervention was really on the first year. Yeah. Now, I recognize that the magnitude of weight loss and proof potentially was not necessarily what you wanted to attain in the first instance. But in the analyses that you did after the effect, when you looked at the people who lost 5% of their body weight, what was the magnitude of benefit in terms of the risk that you'd expect for the development of osteoarthritis of the knee? Those effects are actually quite strong. If we look at those who lost five kilograms or 5% over the first year, um, we see that after six and a half years, the number of knees that have osteoarthritis is down two thirds. So 66% lower incidence of osteoarthritis in the ones that actually lost five kilograms or 5% in the first year. So that's, we think, an achievable target with strong effects on osteoarthritis actually. Yeah, I mean, I just again, just to really stress that point, 
a 5% weight loss over the first 12 months. And when Yoss and his team looked at that at six and a half years, a two thirds reduction in the development of knee osteoarthritis. Now, do you want to tell us a little bit about your intervention? And if you were to do the study again, what type of intervention might you use to get people to lose weight? And would it be the same? Yeah, that's something that we thought about a lot. Like I said, we really try to have a easy implementable study. So it wasn't very strict. We try to offer people something that would match their needs, but I think I would improve there. So we offer people a 20-week exercise program where they were introduced to a fair amount of different studies that were available in their local neighborhood, hopefully to find someone to do that with them and some activity that they could prolong after the intervention period. And we also sent them to a dietitian to, through motivational interviewing, find where their motivation is to lose weight and help them to achieve that. I think we aim to get people to do a sport. And I think in a, a new trial, I would actually try to get people physically active. I think we might aim too high. Taking the bike to the shop or to the work, taking the stairs if you go into a building or do a walk every, every day. I think that would be more achievable for this population. And I think in the end might have a larger effect because more people can actually achieve that. Yeah, as you say, I think being pragmatic and implementable is really, really important. Um, and if someone can build this into their day-to-day -day life, it's potentially more likely to be translatable. Now, there's a lot of interest in other ways of achieving weight loss other than diet and exercise, including the use of drugs to achieve that and bariatric surgery. What are your thoughts on those two types of interventions as opposed to diet and exercise? From a patient perspective or a patient from a person with overweight or obese, I can see why taking a drug would be easier than changing your entire lifestyle. But I personally think that the effects of taking drugs or doing surgery might be only short term. If you keep your lifestyle as it was before, you are very likely to gain weight after these interventions. So I would really advocate a change in lifestyle which is more sustainable over time. Although harder to achieve, but I think that that's a part where we as researchers and also um, the healthcare system should do a, a good job in, in helping these people to actually achieve that. Yeah, no, I haven't looked at the study in a little while, but cognizant of the fact that you did MRIs on these people as well, did you have an upper limit for body mass index or weight in the trial itself? And and any comments that you want to make about limitations people may have in engaging in physical activity at higher class levels of obesity? There is a strong correlation between the body weight and the amount of structural damage that we see in the knees. So even in this population that we studied for this preventive trial that had no symptoms and also on a plain radiograph, was free of osteoarthritis. On MRI, we saw many, what we might call early features of osteoarthritis, which prevalence was definitely higher in those who uh, had a higher body weight. But the trends are equal for those with more structural features and those with, with less structural damage. In both groups, the trends of prevention of the development of osteoarthritis are similar. So although there is something going on in these knees, it's, it's not too late to actually do something about the body weight. And with that prevents true osteoarthritis. We mean the, the symptoms of osteoarthritis uh, to prevent. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit more. 
So obviously when you recruited these people, when you looked at their x-rays, by and large, they were normal, right? But yep. you've also done MRIs on these people that demonstrate early structural features that are probably consistent with osteoarthritis long-term if they were left to do that. But what you're suggesting is that a lot of those structural features, if a person was effective in losing weight, actually showed improvements. Is that what you're suggesting? That's what we anticipated and that's what we, we thought would happen. In the end, we don't see many features improve over time in people that lose weight, but we see that those who actually gained weight do show a larger progression over time. So it seems that it's fairly stable in the ones that lose weight and it progresses in those who are gaining weight over our follow-up period. So we're not curing osteoarthritis, but I think and I hope that we are delaying it definitely by doing weight loss in this group. And if we want to prevent these features, we might even need to start earlier than doing it in people with uh, between 50 and 60 years. Yeah, really important point. And I think just to really stress to, to people who are out there that the joint does have reparative potential. If you catch it early enough, there is an opportunity to reverse some of these deleterious trends. Now, when thinking about the, the weight loss that you attained, why does that lead to a reduction in the incidence of osteoarthritis? What's the mechanism of benefit here? Like you said, there haven't been that many studies on the prevention. In general, we think that there are two mechanisms by which uh, obesity leads to knee osteoarthritis, which one is the biomechanics, so the, the load, the, the load on the knees due to the excess body weight. And if you lose that, then the, the load on the knees is suggested to go down as well. But we also see that the people with overweight and obesity have a uh, low-grade inflammation throughout the body, which negatively affects the structures in their knee joint. And uh, by losing five kilograms or 5%, we see uh, improvements in this low-grade inflammation, so less inflammation and less burden on the, the tissues in, uh, in the knee joint. So those are the two main mechanisms through which we think that this is beneficial. So we've spoken a bit about osteoarthritis, and obviously in, in the study where you've demonstrated this, you've seen in those people that lose weight, they get less symptoms and, and less x-ray change consistent with osteoarthritis. What other benefits potentially could be attained through weight loss in these people who might have other health conditions or predisposition to other health conditions as well? We know that many people with osteoarthritis also have comorbidities, so other conditions. We don't know that much about which conditions comes first and which one cause the other, but in general, these people with overweight and obesity are at risk for many other chronic conditions uh, like the cardiovascular disease, like diabetes. And weight loss has effect on all these, also on the risk for certain cancers. Uh, we even see it now in this pandemic that those with overweight or obese have more complications and are more likely to be hospitalized. So there are many, many effects of an excess body weight, but also beneficial effects on uh, after losing weight on all these conditions. So, and, and that's one thing that was one of the questions that we had with our trial. There's this saying, saying there's no glory in prevention. So these people that were in our trial, why would they change their lifestyle to prevent osteoarthritis? They don't have symptoms. So how do you keep these people motivated to lose their weight? Because they can't experience any pain relief and if, it, if it's done well, they will never do so. So how do you know that it's effective? Uh, so I think for 
preventing osteoarthritis through weight loss, we also need to focus on the risks for other diseases and other outcomes that people can actually experience to gain some motivation and, and keep uh, to their intended goals and, and their lifestyle changes. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the issues that I, I guess I wanted to get into is that, you know, you've done a six and a half year study. You've got a large population of people that you're engaging over a long period of time in a group that doesn't have much, if any, symptoms to motivate them to continue to engage. How did you encourage them to continue to remain engaged? And what, what barriers and challenges do you see to, to the maintenance both both the attainment of loss, but also the maintenance of that loss. Yeah, for for our study, we we just had very regular contacts with them. We visited every patient at home every six months to have a sort of build a personal relation to to check how they are doing, and also, of course, have the data collection for our trial. But that's actually one of the main challenges in this area of research. So there have been studies on weight loss in people with overweight or obesity, not necessarily to prevent osteoarthritis, but in general. But many studies are of short-term duration. So, and after a year or maybe two years, but we know to have a sustainable effect on health, you need, well, maybe four years, five years of follow-up to see whether after such a long period, people still are at a more healthy weight. And I think that's, that's where we lack some knowledge how really to have this long-term adherence and long-term weight maintenance. That's, that's something that, well, in, in osteoarthritis, it definitely hasn't been done. But also outside of that, that's something that's worth to really focus on. Yeah, it's, uh, it's incredibly hard. And, you know, we're obviously talk, sitting talking about it here and probably oversimplifying the whole, the whole context and the challenges that people face in trying to, trying to lose weight. Um, and we don't, we definitely don't want to seem like we're we're simplifying that. It's 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 a huge challenge. But I think some of the cues that Yus is talking about there, both both in terms of you know regular contact with a person who's going to coach and counsel you through that process, some of the education around the importance of losing weight, both for osteoarthritis but also uh, for the other diseases that might be affecting that person, I think are really incredible uh, places to start. Now, not everybody's at risk of developing osteoarthritis. How does one know if they are at risk? So in, in which part they might want to embark upon that long intervention we've just been talking about? Yeah, so we know there, there are a couple of risk factors and that's what we, uh, the ones that we use for our trial. But I guess there, there are some other aspects what that's what we also focus on in, in our research is that there are actually quite some patient reported outcomes that are predictive of who has an increased risk of developing osteoarthritis. So something like pain when going up the stairs or standing up from a chair or the feeling of morning stiffness or some fairly simple physical exams that a GP or a physiotherapist could do like joint line tenderness. We see that these are early signs that if present put people at risk of developing osteoarthritis but i think in regular healthcare these are ignored and that's uh, how we try to shift the focus towards early detection and early treatment is by trying to educate these clinicians by not ignoring these early signs because nowadays uh, if someone comes at a gp with 
pain, sometimes pain when they go up the stairs and might some mild morning stiffness. Normally these people are sent home and are, are told come back when it's more severe. Now we know that when we start treatment, when the symptoms are severe, our treatments are not very effective. So I think that, well, we can't call them patients because they don't have the complaints, but that people who are at the age, age range of 40 to 60, where OA normally develops, and they have these signs, I think they should really um, be educated and treatment should already start with these early signs. So I think that both the patients and the clinicians should really take these first signs very seriously. Yeah, really important point. And, you know, I think if, if one looks at some of the, the literature there around what you're talking about, if we wait until a person has more constant symptoms as opposed to intermittent activity-related symptoms, the interventions that we have there are less likely to lead to a, a longer-term meaningful benefit. Now, let's work on the assumption that there's now good evidence to suggest that we get a person to lose weight and we can prevent by virtue of their 5% weight loss, about two thirds of the disease from developing. Most healthcare systems are pretty good at delivering MRIs to assess a person's joint, to get joint replacements on a person that has osteoarthritis, but they're not that good at public health interventions. What are the barriers we have to implementing the types of changes that you're talking about in modern healthcare systems? Yeah, that, that's that's a very good point. Like we discussed, it's very complex to have people change their their lifestyle. So it should be definitely a multidisciplinary approach, and that's where I think we have the largest challenges to have multiple disciplines helping these people to change their lifestyle. And for every individual, it will be different. So for one, they would need some assistance with getting physically active, while others need to change their the way uh, and, and the type of food they consume. So it's, it's very complex. It's, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all, and it really should be tailored to the individual. But then next to that, you can question whether it's the healthcare system that should take this role on and whether or not it's more a... Um, a population approach that the government have to implement in the sorts of food that are offered, how we challenge people to be physically active. So not on the individual, but truly on the population. I think that's also something that really could have uh, very strong effects on, on the number of people that have, that have overweight or obesity. Yeah, it's a really important point. And obviously, you know, a lot of countries rage against what we call the nanny state, where governments decide a lot for people that they may not necessarily feel strongly and get concerned about losing individual freedoms. In that context, you know, we, we know that by encouraging physical activity, by reducing junk food or, and, you know, taxing unhealthy foods and by increasing healthy food alternatives and subsidizing that, you can make a massive difference. Unfortunately, many countries around the world are not necessarily brave enough to adopt those policy changes. But, you know, I think what you've demonstrated in proof is just, you know, a small benefit that can be attained to healthcare by virtue of some important policy changes. As you suggested, if we leave this all to individuals to change behavior, it's going to be a lot more complicated. All right. Well, I'm probably digressing into something that I know very little about. 
but <laughs> what are the most pressing research needs in this particular field? So if we talk about this area of prevention, I think for a researcher, we can think of who is at risk and I think we can think of what interventions we think that might be effective in these groups. But like we already discussed, OA is such a slow developing disease. If we keep measuring the incidence of osteoarthritis the way we do with radiographs and based on chronic pain, it takes many, many years for OA to develop. So if we want to facilitate doing preventive studies, uh, I would say for a research perspective, the evaluation and development of, of what we call surrogate outcomes. So outcomes that change on a short term that actually predict the long-term osteoarthritis, so short-term OA outcomes, that's definitely something that would improve the, the research on this early phase because it's, it's undoable to have hundreds of people followed for many many years in in a study to before we have any results so that's definitely one of the main challenges in this research area i think yeah prognostic markers so 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 important now in the interest of just learning a little bit more about who you are and what makes you tick why do you do what you do what motivates you i think uh, in general it's the it's the curiosity and going down such a road and really find uh, this new knowledge is something that I really enjoy. But also, and that's something that is a bit harder in these times, the uh, collaboration and interaction with, with smart people and interesting people, uh, not only on their own department and my own PhD students or colleagues, but also internationally. I really enjoy to challenge one another uh, with new findings, with with small ideas, into and and to help each other to to really improve the way we uh, treat people with uh, with musculoskeletal disorders. Yeah, we're really lucky to have the jobs that we do. I think it's uh, wonderful to have that intellectual stimulation, but I think also, as you suggested, you know, we have a wonderful community, and I think a very collegial community that understands that this is a massive problem uh, that we will hopefully interrogate and fix. Uh, together. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Well, if I, if I take that question into the, the research and the focus of my, my research, and a billboard might not have enough space to explain this, but I really would try to educate or inform a large audience that the human body is not a machine. We tend to uh, compare our body with like a car if something is broken it needs to be fixed before you can use it the human body is a lot smarter than that there it has a, amazing capacities to to restore damage and being active is a very good uh, stimulation for the body if more people understand that that might lead people to become active if they have a sore knee instead of being inactive and more like like these changes that can really help their symptoms or other diseases it's a really important message but as a classic academic you're, you've just written an essay on a billboard and uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah. hopefully people get the message now is there any one piece of advice knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people with osteoarthritis in passing 
So you're shifting here to people with osteoarthritis. I think it's it's related to the, the topics that we discussed for the prevention. I think also in people with the disease, uh, staying physically active and on a healthy weight is very important. And of course, that's one of the advantages that people without osteoarthritis that want to prevent have over those with symptoms. They don't have the symptoms, so they, it's probably easier to be physically active. But I think also for people with symptoms, it's very important to get your daily exercise. Of course, not to overload your joints and have a severe increase of symptoms due to that. But I think being physically active and try to be at a healthy weight is very important for, uh, for, for all of us. And so also for people with osteoarthritis. It's a great way to end. And, you know, as you said, a good segue between those topics of prevention, but also treating people with osteoarthritis. There's a lot of really important parallels there. Yours, really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule to have a chat with me about such an important topic and bringing your wisdom and thoughts to an area that you've really contributed to a lot. Um, I do want to wish you well, because it seems like the Netherlands is going into another spike, but hopefully you'll stay safe uh, through, all of, through all of that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, David. Stay safe. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.